So um, this is our last talk before lunch, and we're actually going to do this panel style. Um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Eric Dar, um, who is a professor of medicine. Um, he's the chief of the division of HIV medicine at UCLA, um, at Harbor UCLA, and he's also currently the um, interim chair of the Department of Medicine. He is a uh, well-known HIV uh, researcher as well as a ter terrific clinician, and he's picked some challenging cases. I have to say these are hard, and I'm not looking forward to being put in the hot seat on some of these, um, but we'll all get a chance to do some voting um, and put what we've learned this morning uh, into practice. So so uh, thank you, Eric. Great, thank you. Um, so good morning, and uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to be able to present the cases to the panel. Uh, and we welcome some input uh, if people have specific comments or questions along the way. Uh, the approach that I take with these cases is to uh, use cases that I think happen in the real world and that a lot of the decisions that we make in treating patients and responding to their questions is based on the existing evidence, but sometimes the evidence doesn't tell us the right answer or the only answer for everybody. So a lot of the cases are developed where there may not be one right answer, and the idea being to hear what the audience thinks and how they would respond to some of these scenarios, but also get input from the panel, again, with the idea that there is no one right answer. Uh, we did a panel discussion like this at the Los Angeles course, and um, you know you realize that uh, things are changing quickly. Uh, so we've uh, I've actually even modified some of the responses uh, based upon what we heard in Los Angeles to get a full breadth of ideas from all of you. Uh, I know they're trying to work on bringing up the image for the panel so that they don't have to kill themselves to see the screen behind them. Uh, and I think, I don't, you know, we've actually, I think we're probably ready to go. And we're on uh, target to be a little bit ahead of schedule and maybe an early lunch, and that's never a bad thing, especially after a microbiome talk. <laughs> so um, let me go ahead and start. Uh, these are my disclosures. Uh, these are our learning <laughs> objectives. And again, I have cases related to treatment for prevention, a case on uh, first starts, switching therapy, which is one of the more common things that we're doing in clinical <laughs> practice, and a, a brief discussion about virologic failure. So we'll start with this first patient. It's a 52-year-old man with stable diabetes who been, um, had been HIV negative, uh, who presents to you for advice regarding how to best avoid HIV infection in his new relationship with an HIV-infected male partner. He states that his partner has been on antiretrovirals for nearly two years with good viral suppression, and he's been diagnosed with several STIs in the last year. They mostly use condoms, but have heard that they may not be necessary if his partner is suppressed, and he would rather not use them, but wants to know what your thoughts are in this particular scenario. So the first question is, um, the HIV-infected man, he's... Um, who's worried, which of the blow below would be the closest to what you would tell him with regards to his risk for acquiring HIV from his current partner, as he described him, if they chose not to use condoms? You would be at some risk and should ideally use condoms. The risk would be, and again, I'm talking specifically about HIV risk, the risk would be very low but can't tell you that it's completely safe or your risk of acquiring HIV from your partner is essentially zero. So why don't you go ahead and vote? Eric, can you remind us? Because apparently it's 
short attention span, but his partner is suppressed. His partner is stably suppressed on therapy <laughs> for several years. And Annie, you don't have to vote. I'm going to ask you guys separate. So that way you can you can focus your attention it's on really the. It's really important <laughs> to vote these days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In every possible way. Let's see. Can you see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're fine. Okay, so we have the majority said the risk would be very low, but can't tell you that it's completely safe. And your risk of, uh, about third said, risk of acquiring HIV from your partner is essentially zero. So um, let me ask, if I sh sort of just go across the panel quickly, Howard, which one did you pick? Um, I, would, I would pick three to specifically, okay. the third one to specifically answer your question. But um, I'm a little concerned there are STDs entering into the relationship, and I'm not quite sure how they're getting in. Uh, so I think there's other reasons for him to be on PrEP rather than concerned about acquiring HIV from his partner who's suppressed. Okay. Annie, what did yeah, you... Yeah, I think it was, this was a trick question, I think, because it's from his partner, I think he he's virtually zero, but that's not what we're worried about is coming from. Okay. And Davey? Uh, I agree, and a lot of studies show that uh, new transmissions, actually half of them occur from outside the relationship. And Susan? I would agree with what everybody else has said. Uh, essentially zero from within the relationship, but you need to always ask if they've got other partners as well. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's always, yeah, sorry. Oops, sorry. Okay. Oh. Yeah, use your microphones. So, I, you know, I think that that's really the, a, a big part of the issue in these cases is, you know, you're relying very heavily on the person's history, uh, and you're often relying on their history of some other person. Uh, which requires a little bit of faith. So we always have to have an open mind. Um, if you had no concerns about him having outside relationships and there were no concerns about the partner's level of viral suppression, would people, anyone on the panel, not vote for the third option, essentially zero? Again, a lot of ifs. So no concerns about anything outside of the relationship and no concerns about suppression. Anyone not vote for three? I'll take your absence three. of a response. Yes, uh, yep. Okay. And then the other question that comes up is, um, and Susan, you've talked about this before, is you know how much do we fixate on the fact that we know that when you look at cohorts of patients in the clinic, that although many are suppressed, uh, there are often times where their viral loads are not suppressed. And how much time do you spend talking to patients like this? I I think it's an important issue in that, um, you know, I, I think it all depends on how well he knows his partner and uh, can, if they've had, I mean, I, what I hear from people is, oh yeah, well I hooked up with this guy last night and he told me he was virally suppressed. I wouldn't, I, I would suggest that that kind of a person, if they're hooking up with multiple people or um, have casual partners that they don't really know whether or not they're fully virally suppressed, that they go, uh, that, that they go on to PrEP. But I think if somebody's in the context of a stable relationship and they know that their partner is truly virally suppressed, that that's okay. There was an interesting uh, presentation <coughs> from Croy this year, I don't know if you're gonna show these data or not, but um, where they asked people if they were virally suppressed and then they sent them a dried blood spot, uh, they, uh, dried blood spot paper and asked for a dried blood spot and they mailed in their uh, result and about half of them, of the people who said that they were virally suppressed were truly virally suppressed. 
But about another 30, 35% had very low levels of virus, and then about another 15% or so uh, had viral levels of, le of greater than 1,000. So I think it, it's important to have the conversation about how well do you, does your partner actually know that they're virally suppressed, to probe a little bit and not just go on, well, he said he was virally suppressed. Yeah. So it's, you know, there was a great presentation at CROI where, you know, it was emphasized how empowering it is for patients to know that this is true, that their risk is so low if the circumstances are right. Um, but there's so many caveats also that it's always challenging for us as clinicians when we're counseling patients. And that's even when everything is straightforward. That's before you start talking about outside relationships. I, um, I think it's easier for us to counsel our HIV-positive patients about the power of U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. It's more tricky when we're counseling our negative patients, who because there we need to really probe about what do they know, because we don't know what their partner's status is. Right. So this is the HPTN052. Everyone is aware of this. This was the, as Susan already talked about, the large randomized control trial that really demonstrated this 90-plus percent uh, reduced risk of transmission in people who are using uh, antiretroviral therapy as an adjunct in this particular case to other safe sex practices, because that was the key thing in this study is everyone was counseled that they should continue to practice safe sex and were given condoms and things like that. Uh, and the conclusion that there were no transmission events from people who were stably suppressed on antiretroviral therapy. And then the question comes up, well, what about in a setting of exclusive condomless sex? And the partner study was very informative, uh, where they had large numbers of people, including people um, in other risk groups than were in HPTN052, like men who have sex with men, and documented no transmission events, despite tens of thousands of condomless sex acts. Again, in this particular cohort, it was a setting, a population that was defined by the infected partner being suppressed with viral loads less than 200, uh, and the couple having almost exclusively condomless sex and not a single transmission event. Uh, and then uh, another cohort that people often refer to with over 10,000 condomless sex acts. Uh, in this case, a lot of men who had sex with men again with no identified transmission events. So under the right clinical circumstances, the risk seems to be very low, and we get to this uh, HIV undetectable equals untransmittable concept that has gotten a lot of publicity. The challenge for all of us is to make sure that we don't ignore some of the caveats as we provide what is otherwise a really empowering and extremely important message. Uh, and then there are several consensus statements. Um, this was one. The CDC came out with one as well that is very close to this. And just for those who haven't seen it, the, the language is people living with HIV on antiretrovirals with undetectable viral loads in their blood have a negligible defined as so small or unimportant as to be not worth considering or insignificant of sexual transmission of HIV. So it's an extremely powerful statement based on, I would argue, very, very strong data if the circumstances are just right. So same scenario, but the partner's not reliably on antiretrovirals, and your patient is very interested in PrEP. He's asymptomatic, his fourth generation HIV antibody antigen test is negative, he's hep B surface antibody positive, uh, and only has a creatinine clearance of 50. So as you recall from Susan's presentation, guidelines on who are candidates for PrEP. This was one of the questions that came up. Uh, how does the CDC define it? And as Susan pointed out, it's pretty much based on risk-taking activity. So HIV-positive sex partner 
inconsistent condom use or recent STIs, commercial sex worker, and so on, IV drug user. So it all makes perfect sense. These are the scenarios in which somebody might be at risk. These are the kinds of patients that were enrolled in the randomized control trials. Um, and these are the CDC and other guidelines as well are targeting this same type of population. Um, it is important, one of the things that isn't often talked about in scenarios that occasionally come up is, what about somebody who fits into these categories whose partner is stably suppressed on antiretrovirals? And again, that changes the dynamic, right? Because we're trying to target a, a group of people that are at sufficient risk to justify whatever risks there are associated and costs associated with PrEP. And we just said that in the right setting, that risk is virtually zero. So you do need to consider the partner. But in this case, the partner is clearly not consistently virologically suppressed. The problem is, as Susan pointed out, the current guidelines are that we're not supposed to use the FDA-approved tenofovir-disproxyl fumarate FTC for PrEP in people with creatinine clearances of less than 60 mils per minute. Um, and I'm not saying that this is a common scenario, but I know I've seen a couple of people like this. And in fact, when we were doing a pilot study on PrEP, we had several people who ended up being excluded. They often had comorbid conditions. They were often a little bit older, but they were otherwise qualified except for this. Our particular patient has, you know, a, a pretty high-risk situation, as he describes it. So the question is, what would you do for this individual? Um, Give him TDF-FTC once daily and monitor closely. Consider TAF-FTC once daily. You know there's a large study underway, but no data yet available. Perhaps try to limit the amount of exposure to the drug he's having by using the on-demand prep. Uh, use TNOF-FTC four times per week. Susan showed us some modeling data that suggested in MSMs that might be enough. Strongly encourage him to not take PrEP since his renal function is impaired and the guidelines explicitly state that he should not be given the current approved regimen or something else. Go ahead and vote. This clearly falls into the category of I believe there is not a right answer. I think I did something wrong. Okay. Okay. Um, somebody want to, any volunteers? There are a lot of people who voted for something else. Does anyone want to comment on what something else might have been? Just open to you. There's no wrong answer here because I'm not sure any of the answers here are perfect. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so I don't know what it is, but something else. Susan, what would you have done? Something else, sometimes the something else is sometimes people are put on PEP on a sort of uh, chronic basis um, without a tenofovir-based regimen. So that's one something else, but it doesn't sound like that's what people were, were suggesting. I've also heard sort of condoms is another <laughs> something else. Um, but those are, you know, and I, I guess one of the things I would argue is that it's worse for his renal function to become HIV-infected um, than not to become HIV-infected. I think the issue would be to, to explore a little bit. One of the things is this could be motivating for the positive partner to actually get fully virally suppressed, but you want them to be fully virally suppressed for three to six months before the person would go off of PrEP. Um, 
the uh, so I think that taking prep four times a week may be a reasonable approach in that you're basically dose reducing the amount of tenofovir that he's getting. And it seems as though for men who have sex with men, four times a week is, is as good as uh, daily prep. Um, it's, it's something to explore. I think one of the challenges with the uh, pericoital 211 regimen is that you're, you're double dosing first. And then, you know, if they're having sex any more than once a week, you're already giving them four doses a week. So I'd probably, you're probably gonna give them less if you just go four doses a week. I'd be interested in hearing what other members so of the So is that think. what you would do? Um, I mean, you know, you have to make a decision, right? Yeah, that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> Davey? Yeah, that, that's, that's what I've done. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and you're also, if they have a lower creatinine clearance, you're actually getting levels that probably are yeah. gonna be okay anyway at four times a week. Yeah. Um, just make sure they're spacing it out. Yeah. Annie, and then how? Yeah, I mean, it, this is just hard, but but I think Susan's point is a good one, which is you can follow people's renal function, and you can monitor this, and if things go south, you can then readdress this, but it's much worse to have HIV. So I would probably come up with some, depending on what his sexual frequency is, either four times a week or the day regimen, something along those lines. I wouldn't give him Descovy, you know, I wouldn't give him TAP, because I just don't know if that's going to work, and there's some concerns that are out there. So I wouldn't come up with something off I don't sure. know what something else is, but I would make up something else. Because um, we, well, well, we make up stuff all the time, right? We have to make up stuff. This is a scenario where I think we really need the data. So I'd go with the data. And the truth is we gave a lot of tenofovir to people who had marginal renal um, function. And, and most of them did okay, and we can monitor it. Yeah. So it's, it's bad for him to get HIV. And if he doesn't want to use condoms consistently, uh, that's not feasible for him. I would just would monitor and make sure that he really understood. Howard, any other thoughts? Or? Um, I would go with either the first choice or something else. I think it's important to remember in this kind of setting that condoms are about 80% effective if used appropriately and regularly in terms of HIV uh, transmission reduction. So it's, it's not trivial by any means. I think the other thing is, is I'd, I'd want to know a little bit more about the range of certainty of 50 mLs per, m per, per minute based upon estimated creatinine clearance. I'd feel much more concerned if it was 30 or 20, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. 50, I'd feel perfectly comfortable monitoring mm -hmm. the patient closely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this probably falls into the category of things we do in medicine all the oh. time, where you just have to sit down with the patient and weigh the risks and benefit of, right. of leaving him unprotected versus trying to enhance his risk by you know dealing with the partner or other reason, other ways like condom use or taking a chance with very careful monitoring, but somebody with careful monitoring for sure. The other thing I just wanted to mention that comes up a lot is that um, this is a little bit different, but sometimes people say, well, I don't really need to be on PrEP because my partners are all on PrEP. I ask them and they're on PrEP. And I, I don't buy that. I would really recommend that if your partners are on PrEP, perhaps you should be on PrEP too. Um, so that was just something I wanted to add. Yeah, because we, I mean, we know in the real world what the yes. efficacy is of PrEP. Yes. And it's not 90 plus percent in a if, population if, of people who take it inconsistently. Exactly. And yeah. I've certainly heard of cases of people who are HIV positive saying, you see, I'm on PrEP, I've got my Travada bottle. Yeah. Um, and so we just, you know, they don't know how, it, th in that situation, they're even less likely to know all of the details of what their multiple partners are doing. Good point. Yes. Susan, did, I, did I hear you correctly saying you would want somebody to press for after six months? It's really, th it's probably three months is what, well, at least what the data suggest um, from HPTN 052 and from the partners prep study is people, uh, the only breakthrough infections they saw were in people who, uh, in terms of transmission, were people who weren't virally suppressed 
or people who were not yet fully virally suppressed. So I wouldn't on day two of somebody being on their antiretrovirals say, okay, you're good to go. In general, I'd say probably three months. The three to six months probably has to do with these were studies going on in Africa without integrase inhibitors, and it probably took longer for them to fully suppress. Did you have, oh, you're just working on the microphone? Yeah. Hi, Howard? I have one, one question. Um, what about uh, the effect of viral blips in people that are suppressed mm -hmm. on transmission? Do we have any information on that? We don't really have any information on that. Yeah. I mean, we do know that, you know, like in the partners yes. study, those were less than 200, yes. not less than 50. Yeah. So there's probably some wiggle room. Yeah, but there probably yeah. is. And, and we don't think that that's going to have an impact, but we don't have really discrete data on yeah. it. Okay, let's move on. So now we have a treatment-naive patient. So this cat's out of the barn, or whatever the expression is. We have a 29-year-old man presents to clinic after having a routine HIV antibody screen test that's positive. CD4 count is 570. The patient is immediately referred and understands that there are good treatments available, has insurance to cover the costs of care, um, but would prefer to defer therapy if possible. He has no past medical history, is asymptomatic, um, and has been, had multiple different partners of unknown HIV status during the past year. So the question is, which of the following is closest to what you would recommend to this patient with regards to starting antiretroviral therapy? Strongly encourage, recommend he start, support him in his wishes to defer something else. Again, the only information you have available because he came to you right away is they managed to get a CD4 back before he saw you. So go ahead and vote. And I know these are always tough because we want to have a conversation with the patient and get a better <laughs> understanding why they want to defer, but you're just going to have to accept it as it is. Okay. So, uh, 70% strongly encourage. Anyone here not strongly encourage or at least strongly recommend? I think. I strongly encourage both for his health, but also he's got all these multiple partners as well, so there's a public health benefit. But, but just on the basis of his own health, I would still strongly recommend. Yeah. There, there's, there's different ways to strongly encourage, yeah. and I think you just need to be cautious not to, yeah. not to scare him yeah. or alienate him. Um, yeah, I mean, you you have a feel, right? If how the person it's a is bit, responding to it, it's a little bit easier to, to know how to negotiate this if you know the patient. If yeah. you don't know the patient, he's brand new to you. It's and one of the challenges, as we think about earlier and early therapy, is we know them less and less. So that is a yeah. sort of evolving challenge that we deal with. So we have the START study that showed, I think, unequivocally that there is true benefits for the individual to start early. Remember, this was a study where uh, it was prematurely discontinued because of about a 50-plus percent reduction in this composite endpoint of AIDS and non-AIDS-related events for those people who start with CD4s of over 500 versus deferring to less than 350. And two thirds of the events happen in people with CD4s of over 500. So we have this clinical data. Um, there's a combination, sort of an analysis that included another early st uh, START study from uh, analysis from SMART showing that the benefits extend beyond AIDS to multiple non-AIDS related events. So on an individual basis, there's clearly a benefit and we already talked about the benefit to partners. So, you know, I think that there is now a real consensus across the world that if you have access to treatment and people are willing to start, we don't force people to start that don't want to, that we really should strongly encourage them to start. 
So then, you know, we're starting to talk more and more about pushing the limits, and Susan already alluded to this in the context of uh, how, it, how immediate is immediate. So your patient decides that starting is the right thing to do. What would you do at this point? Would you send a routine laboratory studies, a genotype, schedule for a follow-up appointment when results return? Send routine laboratory studies without a genotype and start therapy immediately. Send routine laboratories with the genotype, so it gets at you know how important is the genotype if you're going to be starting right away anyway, and start immediately, or do something else. And again, the only information you have about him, and he's a young, asymptomatic man with a relatively high CD4 count. So go ahead and vote. <laughs> Okay, so 88% said they would go with the genotype but start immediately. Interesting. So I know what's going on in the Getting to Zero program in San Francisco, um, but what would people do? Howard, what would you do? You're not in San Francisco. Right now I am. I, that's a good point. <laughs> we hope you're not taking care of patients in San Francisco. No, I don't think I'm licensed to practice here, actually. Um, I would say, just uh, speaking from the East Coast perspective, I would say the majority of providers are probably not doing three right now. Um, they're probably doing one. I think what's changed is the time interval. Uh, we, we're not waiting for the genotype test results to come back. So we're not waiting because at our place it takes three weeks for them to come back. We're uh, giving the diagnosis a little bit of time to sink in, bringing the patient back within a week or so, and having a more detailed discussion about <laughs> antiretroviral therapy and starting therapy at that time. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about sort of the decision-making about starting therapy in a moment in these different settings. But, Davey, have you given much thought to the role of the genotype in the current era with the treatments that we're currently starting? Sure. I, I, I view it as the regimen that I give somebody right at the time of diagnosis. I'm a, I'm a number three person myself. Um, the the regimen I'm giving them, probably the genotype, the vast majority of people are going to do great on the regimen that I give them that day. But what I would like to know is what the virus that they got transmitted with so that at the future options, that in case that first one that I use doesn't work, later on I know what sort of resistance has been hiding. Yeah. Well, good question. No. No. So uh, would, do, would we do it? Would people do, if they're going to do a genotype at all, which most people would, would you do an integrase genotype? And, uh, you know, the current guidelines, because there's so few transmitted integrase resistance and, and most of us don't get a, a test that includes it routinely, we have to pay extra for it, the guidelines have not currently recommended it just because transmission is infrequent enough to justify it. Obviously, it depends on your environment. If you're in a setting where you think there is a lot of integrase transmission going on, you might do things differently. And if you have a patient who says their partner has been on lots of different therapies, with inconsistent adherence and maybe viremia who's been on an integrase. So I think that there are scenarios where the, even the guidelines would support it. Um, but it depends a little bit on your setting. Um, but the genotype question is people are revisiting the importance of it. And I must say, I, you know, I'm not sure I'm quite ready to abandon it yet, even though I think it probably is not going to have a big impact on what we start. 
And I do wonder a little bit, we're not going to talk about this, but when we think about sort of evolving treatment strategies, you know, one of the more interesting and exciting things that could happen in the next two years is we might find that we can treat people once a month, right, with injectables, or maybe even every other month with injectables. And one of those injectables is an NNRTI, and that's the most common resistance transmitted. And the only way we'll know if our patient who's now stably suppressed can switch to that option, maybe to have the resistance data available. So I think things are changing enough that maybe we're not quite ready to do it yet, but I've heard some pretty lively debates as to whether we really need genotypes or not. Um, so this is one of uh, several large randomized control trials, all in resource-limited settings, that demonstrate with pretty strong, important endpoints um, that there may be a benefit associated with starting therapy the day of the diagnosis. And I think the argument has been made in these resource-limited settings that, that the advantages may be greater there where it's really difficult for people to come back for follow-up to really engage them on day one, where in a other setting, having them come back in a week or two in most clinical settings in the U.S., maybe not as challenging. So people have struggled a little bit as to whether we could extrapolate from the pretty strong data with important endpoints from resource-limited settings to the U.S. And then Susan already went through the details about the program in San Francisco. And, you know, the one comment I make about this slide is that, you know, the number of diagnoses is on the decline, maybe multifactorial, though. The Getting to Zero program includes lots of different things, for sure. And then you can see, you know, things like starting antiretroviral therapy, which is extremely important endpoint, is the same between 2013 and 16. Uh, the big difference is getting them on early, and Susan said getting them suppressed quicker from the time of diagnosis. And there are some theoretical benefits. I guess it's difficult to prove what that declined. So the DHHS guidelines actually went to the trouble in their October version to put in a lot of language to address this, because it's gotten so much attention, I think, largely because of some of the, the international data and then the experience here in San Francisco. And without reading it, basically they conclude after describing the data that we've talked about that, you know what, in order to do this outside of San Francisco <laughs> uh, requires a lot of resources that many places don't have, and it's difficult to demonstrate in the domestic setting that it changes outcomes. So the guidelines are basically conclude that at this point, they think same-day starts remain investigational in the U.S. We'll see if the feelings change with time. So he decides to start on the same day, as 88% of the people in the audience suggested. Uh, no specific concerns regarding adherence, side effects, or dosing schedule. So the question is, which of the following would you recommend? So two nukes with a boosted PI, and if it helps, you can assume that come June, July, I think, we're going to have a single tablet regimen for a boosted PI. Two nukes with raltegravir. I'll give you duraverine, FTC-TDF, which will likely be approved this year, if you like that. Um, TDF or TAF with FTC-CoBL-Vitegravir. TDF or TAF with FTC-Dolutegravir. The latest and most recently approved Bictegravir, FTC, TAF, or something else. Now, again, we know he has a high T-cell count. His HLA-B5701 is pending. His genotype is pending. His viral load is pending. Go ahead and vote.
Votes are coming in slowly. Either people are getting hypoglycemic because it's 12 <laughs> o'clock, or it's just a lot of different choices. So what this is really getting at is you know, the issue about starting in the current era, one, and two, starting in the current era without a genotype, right? Because he decided to start, and the genotype is pending. And without knowing about their viral load. Boy, people do not like this question. <laughs> We may have to bail and rely heavily on the input from the faculty. <coughs> okay, but still a strong majority for Bictegravir FTC TAF. Okay, Annie? Yeah, sure, I'll take this. So one, I'll say that, and Susan, you can fill in more detail on this, but we do use dolategravir and either TDF, TAF, FTC uh, in rapid programs. So that would have been my choice um, for that, and, and it has worked well. There are other options that people use the only reason why I would not have chosen the, the uh, BIC FTC TAF is that we don't yet have data on M184B, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And now, why wouldn't it work? And we, we just don't know, and it probably would be fine. Um, but, but I'm a little bit conservative, uh, at least in my uh, medication prescribing. So, so the tried and true that we've used a lot of is Dolotegravir, um, or Dolotegravir TAF, or TDF, either of those. Yeah. David, what would you use? Yeah. Um, well, we're using a lot of Elvitegravir <laughs> in our program. That's a rapid start, and it works fine. It's been fine, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think the big issue here is how concerned are we about transmitted resistance? And I guess we would say generically, not a lot of boosted PI transmitted resistance, so not worried about that, except that brings baggage. Um, and then we would say not much integrase transmitted resistance. So we're not too worried about that, but there's the concern, could there be nuke resistance? And how, how big of an issue is that with a boosted uh, integrase-based regimen? And that's where dolutegravir has sort of gotten so much of a, attention because of now the enormous amount of data suggesting it has a higher barrier to resistance. And then the question is, can you extrapolate that to the other options? And you're using L-vitegravir, as um, hopefully you all know, where there's a ACTG is doing an acute infection study where uh, there are sites in San Francisco where if you, I, I assume you guys are open for 5354. If you're not, then come to Los Angeles or San Diego. San Diego. Um, <laughs> uh, so in that study, the, one of the things it's designed to do is be able to actually start people on therapy the day they present. They come in with whatever labs they had in the community and based on that screen in or out, and the study provides drug that's in the investigational pharmacy the day they arrive. So they don't have to order it, they don't have to be pre-screened, and they just get drug, and we're using Elvitegravir also. And there's been about 100 people enrolled, and, and so far, so good, and other sites have done the same thing. So it may be the barrier to resistance of the integrase isn't as important as using an integrase, but the DHHS guidelines tend to be pretty conservative, and they have for years suggested for somebody who you're starting without resistance data, it should be a boosted PI. And then a little over a year ago, they said, and you know, based on what we know about Dolutegravir, it probably fits there as well. And we just don't know. Elvitegravir, we know, has a lower barrier to resistance, but we don't know if it's relevant. And Bictegravir, we really don't know what the barrier to resistance is, although we'll talk about this more. Um, it's probably higher than Raltegravir and Elvitegravir. We don't know if it's as high as Dolutegravir. So there remains some uncertainty. So after discussion, he's anxious to start, but decides to wait until more data comes back. And lo and behold, 
he has a viral load of 80 to 150 copies per mil. So you know, if you think about the when to start issue in the guidelines where there's the most hedging, I think it's a little bit on how quickly is quickly, and the other one is what to do with people who are virologic control controllers or elite controllers. So now we find out that he actually has a low viral load. So the question is now, with this information, would you still strongly encourage him to start, recommend he start, or suggest he defer therapy for now or something else? Go ahead and vote. Are the devices working? They were working great before. <laughs> oh, it's not working. No, no, I think it's working. That's now. working. You got yeah. up to Is it working now? Okay, okay. I was going to say we were going to maybe have to distribute coffee to the entire audience. Uh, okay, now we're going. Okay, so still half and half. Strongly, a little bit more people willing to say maybe recommend. Howard? Um, I think this should be one of those rare instances where you're actually honest with a patient and say we have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and have a discussion with them because I think, sorry, I think we have no idea whether they should be, whether there's personal and, and or public health benefits to them starting on treatment right now. That's so counter to everything going on in America right now, is to be honest with people. Susan, what would you do? I was just going to say there's some data presented at, I, I don't even know if this has worked. Um, there was some data presented at Croydus here that suggested that even with uh, low viral loads, uh, individuals who were controllers, whether they were, we didn't have a lot of information on whether they were elite controllers or not, um, that when they were put on treatment, that they did have an improved quality of life, that they did have a, redu a reduction in uh, signs of uh, immune exhaustion and inflammation. And so I do think that there's benefit. I think, again, this is one of those uh, dances that you do with people to, because if he really wants to, to wait, you, it's probably not going to be terrible for him to wait. But I would still encourage him to go on treatment because I think it's still better for him. Um, and, you know, we, we don't know about the transmission, the transmissibility piece. Yeah, so this is the data that Susan's referring to. And the interesting thing, and it's probably for convenience reasons, the guidelines really hedge about elite controllers, yeah. not quote-unquote controllers. This study enrolled controllers that they defined as people who had uh, low viral loads, but not necessarily undetectable. So they had to have less than 500 copies per mil. So not about a third were elite controllers. And they presented no data on those 13 or 14 people. I assume they will eventually. It'll obviously be underpowered for everything they looked at, but it might give us a hint as to whether this group is any different than elite controllers. Davey, what were, were you going to say something? What would you do? Uh, yeah, I would still recommend that he start, maybe even strongly recommend. I, yeah. I think the data look pretty good, that for him it's very beneficial. Okay. Um, what if he were less than 50 or less than 20? I, I, I think so, too. I've, I've had a small glimpse at those data for those 13. And okay. I think there might be a signal. But. Okay. So I, I, having followed a bunch of long-term non-progressors over many years, who many of whom were elite controllers, I have seen really negative, bad outcomes with lymphomas and such. And so I do think that this chronic inflammatory reaction, even if they've got even if they're elite controllers, is really problematic, and I, I would recommend that they be started on So that, those kinds of observations, anecdotes, and the biologic stuff yeah. would all go into that 
yeah. on this discussion yeah, that Howard's exactly. suggesting we have. Exactly. I, mean, I think one thing we need to keep in mind is the variability in viral load results in a, in a given patient. So if there's threefold variability in viral load results, we're still not exact. I'd want a couple of more points sure. on the curve before I could more aggressively recommend that he start treatment. Fair enough. So these are our current guidelines for first-line therapy. And again, this is for all comers. This doesn't get into some of the subtleties of select patients, like elite controllers. It doesn't get into the subtleties of the people where you don't have genotypes. And the reason I put it up and focus on the DHHS part is that they recently sent out the amendment after the approval of Bictegravir, where the panel added Bictegravir FTC-TAF as one of the preferred options, which as you're all aware now for a while, has been just integrase. And they sort of relegated everything else to a new category that they defined as of October. Basically, this is for uh, most people starting therapy, and then they have for select situations other options where, you know, boosted PIs maybe in somebody where you're concerned about adherence and, and maybe other select scenarios. But it's now all integrase, and, and that's certainly true. ISUSA guidelines, which are now going to be updated after two years, they had gone to all integrase inhibitors almost two years ago already, based on the clinical trials demonstrating not just high efficacy and tolerability and convenience, but actually superiority for composite endpoints against some of the standards of care, like boosted PIs and uh, NNRTIs. Uh, this is the Bictegravir, one of the two registrational trials in treatment-naive patients. Um, sure you're all aware of them. They were presented and have been published. Uh, they were both head-to-head -head comparisons with dolutegravir. One, dolutegravir is a single tablet with the Bacavir 3TC, and the other is dolutegravir with the same nukes as in the Bictegravir single tablet regimen with uh, FTC-TAF and showed clear non-inferiority with, you know, very high rates of virologic suppression in the 90% range. Uh, and the other interesting observation in this study and the others is no resistance selected for. And we'll come back to this, but this is a theme that we've gotten used to with dolutegravir and has emerged, at least with the early data, with bictegravir. So now we have the same patient, only it's another one of those challenging situations that sometimes influences what we do clinically. Patient actually has a lower CD4 count, uh, treatment naive, high viral load, and has had some problems. He's missed some clinic appointments after his initial visit. He admits to using alcohol, experiencing mild depression. He's now met with the psychologist a few times, is relatively stable, drinking somewhat less. Uh, and the question is, now what would you recommend in this particular situation? A lot more information and a, a bit more challenging of a patient. So two nukes plus a boosted PI, and you can assume for now maybe that there's a single tablet regimen available. Uh, two nukes plus raltegravir, the L-vitegravir COBE, dolutegravir, either a Bacavir 3TC or TDF or TAF, bictegravir FTC TAF or something else. And this patient who's got some neurologic symptoms, some substance abuse, and some serious concerns about adherence. And so, just to point out, Eric, that yes. in the box, you said that they were wild type in HLA-BCC701. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So this person, you know, he's been around for a little bit longer, so you have a lot more information back. Thank you. The more answers, the slower it is, I understand. 
Should we go ahead? Okay, so a good mix. Um, quarter for the boosted PI, 20% for dolutegravir, or more than that, really, if you think about it, dolutegravir is more like 40%, and then about a third for bictegravir TC taf Howard, wh which would you have chosen? You gotta pick one, he'll take um, any. I, I'd probably pick the first regimen. Um, boosted PI. Yeah, I think you're trying to come up with a regimen that uh, is going to be most forgiving in terms of uh, adherence, but you're also trying to pick a regimen where there's the greatest likelihood of adherence. And I don't think any of these is perfect in that regard. Um, I would probably, based upon the information I have, pick a protease inhibitor-based regimen, but I I think the, uh, the Bictegravir regimen would also be acceptable. So, so, Annie, where are you? Bictegravir, yeah. dolutegravir. Clearly, dolutegravir, as we said, the barrier resistance is very high and is increasingly being looked at much like we've looked at boosted PIs. Where do you think we are with bictegravir? Yeah, I mean, I think you're balancing these. You're, I, I think that so far, bictegravir looks like it's probably going to have an equally high barrier to resistance. As I said, we don't have any data in the study of ML94B, but we don't, he doesn't have that right. right now. Right. One pill once a day is probably what you're going to want to go for for this gentleman. And I would probably <laughs> pick TAF or tenofovir-containing regimen over abacavir because it might be more robust. That being said, the fixed-dose combination of dolutegravir with abacavir has done very, very, very well. Um, but I, I, and then you mentioned the neuropsychiatric side effects. Yeah, so what do you think? At, you know, I think initially dolutegravir was sort of billed as, and it causes no side effects ever. Well, no medicine causes no side effect ever, and we all have seen in our patients, some will get headaches, some will have some neuropsychiatric side effects. So now we're in the same boat with Bictegravir, which looks like it causes no side effects ever, but it's just early. But whether there's truly less neuropsychiatric side effects with Bic, I think remains to be seen, but, but we certainly have a little bit of a signal with Dolutegravir. So I think for both the, 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 the increased potency of the Tenofovir piece um, and potentially less neuropsychiatric side effects, I'd go with Bic over the fixed-dose um, uh, Dolutegravir, Abacavir. And I would probably stay away from the PI, and this is just a judgment call, but just because of the GI side effects, and then maybe you've blown up with this guy where you know you have sort of one chance to say, hey, this is going to be well tolerated, and if he says, oh, forget it, this was horrible. That being said, that can happen with anything, but I, I think I feel more confident about the BIC and, and, and more worried about what would happen GI-wise with, uh, with the PI. Yeah, uh, any other comments? Because I think you did this is what you really are doing is yeah. balancing what we know and what our concerns are. So balancing how much we know about dolutegravir versus bictegravir for high barrier to resistance versus our concerns about CNS toxicity with dolutegravir and GI with boosted PI. So it is a delicate balancing act, and ultimately this is a person who's going to need a lot of support and close follow-up. So this is, these are the four a large phase three trials in treatment-naive patients um, for dolutegravir. The three registrational trials, which were the head-to-head -head comparison uh, with an NNRTI, a boosted PI, and raltegravir. And, and again, that was sort of the key thing here was the observation that um, there was actually superiority over the boosted PI and the NNRTI, mostly driven by tolerability issues, for sure. Uh, and then uh, non-inferiority against uh, the first-in-class raltegravir. And then they did a trial in all women compared to bustatazanavir, where again, it was superior. And, and the most important observation, I think, that came out of these studies was this absence of resistance. And the thing that was really interesting about it um, was that it wasn't just no integrase resistance, like we see in the boosted PI-based therapies. There was not even any nuke resistance. So if you sort of do the math for these four studies, you end up with several thousand people 
followed for some of these studies for an excess of three years on a dolutegravir 2 nuke based regimen, plus tens of thousands of people treated in clinical practice now starting therapy for the first time, and literally a, a few case reports of resistance. So dolutegravir is clearly proven to be somewhat unique, and now the limits are being pressed. We're not going to talk about that, but as you know, people looking at it as part of a two-drug regimen with dolutegravir and 3TC, and there was even some monotherapy studies with dolutegravir that failed because it showed that, yeah, resistance does happen, um, but, but it takes really pushing it to the limits to see it. Here's the big Tegravir data. We have two large registrational trials had to compare with dolutegravir. It showed non-inferiority with high rates of virologic efficacy. And the similar observation, no mutations selected for in any of these regimens. So for dolutegravir from a randomized controlled trial and naive patient perspective, we now have six fully powered studies, uh, some of them with several years of follow-up. Big Tegravir, we've got two with one year of follow-up. So it's got a long way to go before it will be able to have as much data as we have with dolutegravir. But so far, this, along with the in vitro data, suggests that it may have similar properties. We just don't have nearly as much data yet. And this is the dolutegravir, one of the studies that's been often discussed for CNS toxicity. This was a cohort in a clinic where they switched people to dolutegravir, some naives, a lot of experienced people that were switched to it. And they had a, a surprisingly high rates of stopping for intolerability on the order of about 15%. Now, I personally think this is a lot higher than my clinical experience, but I think it does explain that there's probably something going on. The other interesting observation, and this isn't the only study like it, was that if they were on a back of air with dolutegravir, the likelihood of having to stop for intolerability was even higher than if they were on tenofovir doesn't mean we can't use it, but it does mean it's something we need to counsel our patients about and monitor closely for. So now we have a patient who's suppressed, and we have lots of people who are suppressed in our clinical practice that we're now switching, right? We've got people who are going from TDF to TAF. We've got sort of nuke switches, and we've got third drug switches within class and outside of class. And those are actually pretty straightforward switches. Our only desire is to make sure we're not missing failure in the past. So to make this a little more interesting and challenging, you know, this is a person who actually has a history of virologic failure, and we have these people too. So it's a 54-year-old man, well-controlled diabetes and hypertension with normal renal function and a long history of HIV, previously experienced viral failure on tenofovir FTC efavirenz with a typical resistance pattern, 103N, resistance to efavirenz, 184V, resistance to FTC. He was subsequently suppressed on a boosted PI with TDF-FTC, again, very common strategy for people who fail in this way, and has been suppressed for two years. Uh, and for the last year, his regimen was simplified a little bit by putting him on a fixed-dose combination of darunavir cobacistat and he's tolerated this well, but he's heard about all the new single-tablet regimens, and I don't know about you guys, but this happens in my practice all the time. Um, and he wants to switch. He's hepatitis B surface antibody positive and HLA B5701 negative. So the question is, which of the following would you recommend? And I list here basically the single tablet regimens. I won't go through them uh, in detail. These are the single tablet regimens currently on the market. To be complete, I added dolutegravir-rilpivirine, which is the first two-pill single tablet regimen for maintenance therapy. Um, or you could tell him that there's no good single tablet regimen for him now, so I would hold out for a single tablet boosted PI, which would essentially be the equivalent of what he's on right now. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel for him. Um, or you could tell him that 
Dolutegravir TAF FTC might be an option. Pill gets smaller, get away from boosted PIs. At least they're small pills, but there are two. Bictegravir FTC TAF, new option available, or something else. So go ahead and vote. Remember, he has 184V and 103N in the background. He's been stably suppressed for several years on a boosted PI with two nukes. Okay, so interesting. So a third are going for the newest um, Bictegravir FTC TAF. Uh, and then we've got um, some uh, conservative people. I tend to be conservative and 25% saying, you know what, there's a single tablet on its way for you that's very safe. Um, or some Dolutegravir options and an Elvitegravir. I don't know, anybody wanna comment on what they did or would have done? Davey, you have the microphone. <laughs> Um, yeah, this, this is a where I would have a really good conversation with him. I, having a background of 184V makes me worry a little bit about the Dolutegravir ABC 3PC. Also, I'm a little worried, we talked a little bit, and I guess you're going to talk a little bit about it more, about Bictegravir option in the setting of a 184V. Um, he did tolerate Cobesystat before if he was really wanting to go to another regimen. I, I like the Elvitegravir Kobe regimen. Um, Are you worried about the 184V with that regimen though? No. No? No. Okay. Um, but <laughs> maybe I should be. Um, <laughs> we just don't have a lot of data. People, a lot, a lot of, of retrospective, we, we like people look at cohorts, yeah. Correct, so. Yeah. Okay, other thoughts? Annie, do you I, wanna? I can say what I wouldn't, or can say what I wouldn't do. You know, it's like there's there are no right answers, but they're wrong answers, right? And so nobody picked ropivirin, uh, the first one, which I think I would not do that. I agree. I would probably stay away from the abacavir because it's just going to be a less robust regimen. No one wanted to really touch the dolotegravir ropivirin question. I just do you want to? Ugh, not really, but it's it's just you know we have data. It was a switch study. You know, M194V isn't going to make a difference. I just worry about ropivirin. In the, it's, it's a wimpier drug. It requires stomach acid to be present. You have to eat it with food. You have to eat it with food. It's just wimpier. And this guy, this has been a long-standing, you know, he's been suppressed for a while. He's developed some resistance. That's something that I would only use in the, the absolute right scenario. I just think we want more information. Um, so do, would it not work given his resistance? No, it probably would work. I just, it makes me nervous. Um, so I, I just think I wouldn't go down that. that and, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But if you did use it, like you say, there it probably should work. But it would be it would be inconsistent with the studies that were done, which were pristine patients with no history of failure. And it would be off label because the package insert says no history of viral failure. Correct. Yeah. So same scenario, except this person has now developed progressive <laughs> renal dysfunction. So he's on the boosted PI with TAF-FTC, 
um, but is developing progressive renal function. So this is separate from his desire to be on a single tablet regimen. Now the question is, what do we do as his creatinine is drifting downward? Do we switch him to one of these other options, something with the bacavir perhaps, something without a boosted PI, dolutegravir with TAF, dolutegravirilpivirine, right? In addition, it's worth noting that this person has lots of cardiovascular risk factors. <laughs> diabetic, hypertensive, chronic kidney disease. So we need to be thinking about that as well. So lots of options. All of these regimens have been shown to work very well in either treatment-naive patients and in dolutegravirilpivirine and switch patients. So go ahead and vote. So again, just to remind you, diabetes, hypertension, progressive renal dysfunction on a boosted PI uh, plus TAF FTC. Okay, so a third, Bictegravir FTC TAF. More takers for dolutegravir rilpivirine. Again, off-label, but here, you know, maybe a strong justification. Uh, anybody want to comment? Uh, I, was, I was making a comment about the, the, the TAF issue in that, that technically the label, and correct me if I'm wrong, you give it down to 30, a creatinine clearance of 30, but all the studies that show that it's better it's better than to know for than, than TDF, right? So it's still maybe renally toxic. So I think this is a strategy where we can feel good that it's probably less renally toxic, but this guy is going in the wrong direction. He's got all these renal, these, these risk factors for, for, for um, renal toxicity. So I wouldn't feel good about giving him TAF. Um, and so I would avoid it if I could. Is it wrong to give it to him? No, you have to balance all this. Then you're stuck with the abacavir. Well, what do I do with abacavir? Because maybe he's got risk factors for COD. And but he I does. To, uh, of course he does. Yeah. I would try to optimize those. I would try and get him off of a PI because we know that there are issues with, with um, PIs and cardiovascular disease. So I would try to come up with something, and it would probably be off-label, but that doesn't involve a tenofovir-based product and doesn't involve a PI. And it probably wouldn't just be dolotegravir, real pivoring. I've sometimes given people... Um, a back of your dolotegravir, so the fixed dose combination, and then put Ropivir on next to PPILT. And I know that's fully off-label, but I try to sort of parse out what each of the risks are. But I just think with TAF, I, I think we all have to think hard about just using the cutoff. This guy has renal disease, and we know this is a renally metabolized drug, that there can be yeah. some concern. So Howard, how do you, where are you on a back of your, and then I'll ask you also, where are you on Darunavir in people with cardiovascular risk factors? Um, the most important things to do in this patient are to get his risk factors for atherosclerosis under control, which we would include hypertension and diabetes and whatever other ones you can identify, and also to suppress his viral load. So um, I agree he would be better off uh, not being on a regimen with a boosted protease inhibitor. He would probably be better off not on a regimen with a bacavir. But that being said, if that was the trade-off and we could work on the other two issues and we could get his viral load suppressed, I would tolerate that if necessary. Yeah. And again, it's that same balancing act and discussion that we have with the patients because there's no really perfect answer here. There's a lot of options that might work and may make a lot of sense, 
but no really perfect answer. And then the other um, caveat that I would add to what Annie was saying was just a reminder that when we use TAF FTC with the boosted PI, the TAF is 25 milligrams, and there's no data in anybody, yet alone in people with chronic kidney disease, using 25 milligrams of TAF with a booster. Because in the fixed dose combination with L-Vitegravir-Cobi, it's 10 milligrams. And when the single tablet boosted PI, assuming everything goes right, comes out, it will be 10 milligrams. So there is almost three times as much exposure. Now, that's trivial in somebody with normal renal function because the exposure to, to TAP is so low systemically normally. But as you start to get into more renal function, you at least have to worry about it. And then there's always people in the audience that are saying, well, you don't know that his renal function is even from the tenofovir. And I think that's absolutely true. In fact, there's a very good likelihood it's not. Um, but we have to try to minimize other nephrotoxic agents along the way. And those are the people who develop tenofovir-associated renal dysfunction or often the people who already have renal dysfunction right. due to any other reason. And you just don't know. I mean, and you know, people talk about doing like fractional excretions of phosphorus and things, but the bottom line is if you can get them off nephrotoxic drugs, you probably should. And this is just a reminder of the data that led to the approval of all TAF-based regimens for people with creatinine clearances of down to 30. As far as I know, there's two pieces of data. One is just the pharmacokinetics, based on how much exposure there is systemically in people with chronic kidney disease to TAF. And the other one was this one single-arm open-label study of people who had renal functions between 30 and 69, who got switched to L-Vitegravir, Kobe, Cystat, FTC, TAF, and they maintained stable uh, renal function. So you didn't do any harm. Now, there was no comparator arm. We don't know how these people would have done if they'd stayed on TDF. And again, these people were receiving TAF with a booster at a dose of 10, not at the dose of 25 that our current patient is receiving it at. So I think all of those things do need to be really considered. That back of ear controversy, I think everyone is aware it remains controversial. It will probably always be controversial. But it's in all the guidelines. It's in the package insert. We can't ignore it. Um, we just need to manage it and balance it against what the other risks are. And then the darunavir data, again, many of you probably heard analysis from DAD showing that darunavir was also associated with increased risk of cardiovascular events. So just one more thing to worry about and to consider in making these delicate decisions. Um, and this was the Dawning study. This was a study that was presented last summer. Uh, which was a randomized control trial of treatment-naive people failing first-line NNRTI-based therapy. Almost all of these people had, well, they required to have one fully active nuke in their regimen. That was the requirement to be in the study. And they got randomized to lopinavir, ritonavir with two nukes, only one of which was active in the majority of them, or dolutegravir. The question is, could you use a non-boosted PI in somebody with underlying resistance? And this study was stopped early. Oops. This study was stopped prematurely because the dolutegravir arm actually fared better than the boosted PI. And people always say, well, that's lopinavir, ritonavir. You don't really know if it would be better than darunavir. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that this was the first data that we have where you can get by with one fully active nuke, not two, with something other than a boosted PI with very high rates of virologic efficacy in the 80% range. Now, this is naive. This isn't a switch but it's probably not a leap to extrapolate to somebody who has underlying 3TC resistance and think about dolutegravir with one fully active nuke. Now, all of this data was with tenofovir virtually, or AZT, almost no data with abacavir. 
So if you think about a back of your dolutegravir 3TC as a single tablet regimen in somebody with underlying resistance, we really don't have data for that. So break down by what the failing, the, the, what the drug resistance was, but my assumption was that most of it was M184B, but I didn't see it in there. And I so yeah, so shockingly, and when they presented the data over the summer, they presented no resistance data, other than to say how many nukes were active in the new regimen. It was 90% one. And everyone thought then at Croy they would present the rest of the data, because they had some time to do it, and they didn't. They presented some other funky analysis, which was really interesting that we don't have time to talk about, that suggests the choice of nukes may matter, even if it's only one active nuke. But so again, we have to use the data that's available to ultimately make these really difficult decisions. And I think um, this is the dolutegravir pivoring study. The main thing I point out is the data is really good. A thousand people in these two trials with very high rates of virologic maintenance. However, a very pristine patient population. No history of viral failure, no resistance to the drugs in the regimen. And that's what the package insert <laughs> says for this new regimen. And with that, because of time, I had a treatment failure, a quick treatment failure case, but I think I'm going to pass on it. And we'll go ahead and stop. And I don't know if we have time to do some of the questions or not. Um, I mean, uh, it's sort of up to the audience. I think we have two options. One is a, a time to do the quick treatment failure and not have questions. The faculty will be around. Oh, Eric has to leave uh, right after his talk, so he won't be around. The other faculty will be around if you have questions. And maybe we'll, why don't we do that instead of, and then uh, uh, not do the question and answer. Okay. Because the faculty will be around to do that. And then we'll, that means we'll be able to start lunch early, means we'll be able to reconvene early, which means that you'll be able to leave this room early this afternoon, earlier than suggested. Why don't we do that? If you don't mind skipping ahead. Okay, so I'm going to take full credit for people getting to lunch early then. Uh, <laughs> So this is, again, a very brief case, but I think it's important that people be aware of the current data that informs the guidelines for treatment failure patients. So this is a 43-year-old man, a long history of HIV, suppressed on tenofovir FTC, rolpivirine for several years, suddenly had some problems with adherence, missed doses, and had confirmed viral failure. And he had a genotype consistent with what you typically see in people failing a rolpivirine-based regimen, the E138K and the M184I which confers resistance to 3TC and FTC. He's now adherent, prepared to start a new regimen, whatever you recommend, would prefer to stay on a single tablet regimen if possible, and has no comorbidities in his HLA-B5701 negative. So you have a variety of choices here. You've got a boosted PI with nukes, soon to be a single tablet regimen. You have a boosted PI with integrase, plus or minus nukes if you wanted to use them. You have the Elvitegravir-Cobi regimen, Dolutegravir with TAF, Dolutegravir with the back of your, the new Bictegravir FTC tap, or something else. So again, the person has virologic failure, viremic, with the 138 and the 184. So go ahead and vote. Actually, Steve, I'm thinking you saved me from myself because the question comes out of this last case that you guys all had to answer and we'll be answering again. So it's a good thing we're doing this. 
Um, okay, so 30% Bic Tegravir and 40 plus percent Dolutegravir and a few others. Davey? Yeah. Which one did you pick? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah? <laughs> I think I would have picked Dolutegravir, but um, honestly, I think Bic Tegravir is probably going to be just fine um, in this setting. So he wanted a single tablet regimen. We can't always give people what they want. Would you have caved and given him dolutegravir back over 3TC or no. said, you know, I think I'm going to push back? Yeah, I would have pushed back. Okay. But I would have had a good discussion with him. Um, if it was really adamant that he wanted a single tablet, then... Anybody would have picked something other than dolutegravir or bictegravir? I, I do have one point. Yeah. Is that actually goes back to Howard's point. Uh, is that... Uh, if he really is having trouble with adherence, then I, I really want to pursue you know, talk about darunavir because um, it does. There are nice data saying that people who have a hard time adhering that the, they do better with those regimens. Yeah, that sounds like everybody agreed. Yeah, and I would not give him a back of your first regimen. Oh, you would not. Okay. I, I, okay. I think for for most patients, once a day is more important than whether they're taking one or two pills, but. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to get a better sense from him what the issue is. And that'd be part of the discussion, yeah. So, you know, there's, I think these pivotal trials that came out several years ago now have really defined the treatment of failure. Uh, and this is the Ernest study. This was one of three almost identically designed studies in resource-limited settings of people failing a first-line NNRTI-based regimen. <laughs> Uh, and so these are people who had been on viremic for a long time, had no limited access to resistance data in resource-limited settings, who were randomly assigned to either go on a boosted PI with nukes of the investigator's choice, recognizing these people probably had a lot of resistance, and resistance data wasn't there, with an integrase, so two fully active drugs, because these people were boosted PI and integrase naive. And the Ernest study, unlike the other two, had this funny third arm where they gave the person uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, and once they were suppressed, put them on lopinavir, ritonavir monotherapy. So it was kind of a funny arm to include, but actually was extremely informative, I think, when it was all said and done. And what they found was that virologic response rate, using a sort of traditional less than 50, you had 75% suppression if you used the boosted PI with an integrase or nukes. But the boosted PI alone simply didn't work. So I think the important thing was, with this arm, you can say that it's not the boosted PI that's doing all the work. That adding something else to it, including nukes, and somebody with a lot of nuke resistance makes a difference. And there are these other studies, the second line in ACTG 5273, that showed the exact same results. Non-inferiority for the boosted PI with nukes or with the integrase. The other interesting analysis from Ernest was they then did a retrospective analysis where they looked at how the number of active nukes contributed to suppression. So they went back after the fact, looked at the baseline resistance data, and calculated how many of the nukes were active in that regimen in the people who received the boosted PI with nukes. And you can see some of them had zero active nukes on the far left, some had one active nuke, some had two to three. And the interesting point was that it didn't make a difference. The virologic suppression rates were essentially the same, regardless of the number of active nukes. In fact, numerically was a little better in those who had no active nukes, suggesting that really having the nukes, even in the face of resistance, improved outcomes. And the number of active nukes didn't make a big difference. And most people believe that we see this in a lot of studies. This is driven by just 
the number of active nukes being a marker for adherence, meaning the more adherence you are, if you're failing, the more likely you are to have more resistance. So these people, while they have more resistance, maybe the people on the far left are taking their medication more consistently. The bottom line is the number of active nukes doesn't seem to make a difference. So the key points from this study is boosted monotherapy is not the right answer in this setting. We know that. The number of active nukes is not an important factor, but nukes are important. And then the other major study was the Donning trial that I already alluded to, although here it's in the context in which it was actually done, and that it was for these exact same patients. And the question they were trying to ask is, we appreciate that dolutegravir has a higher barrier to resistance, closer perhaps to a boosted PI. Traditionally, anybody who's experienced virologic failure based on guidelines and experience, all paths went through a boosted PI. And the question is, can we now use dolutegravir the same way? So the key difference between the Donning study and those other three trials with the boosted PI was that these people did have real-time access to resistance data, and in fact, to be included, they had to have evidence of at least one active nuke. And we weren't told anything other than the fact that 90% only had one active nuke in the regimen. The others had two, but overwhelming majority had only one active nuke, and although we weren't told, I completely agree with Annie, based on the fact that these people are all failing a 3TC-based regimen or FTC-based regimen, you have to assume they had 184V and that the one active nuke was the other drug, which in most cases was tenofovir or to a lesser extent was AZT. And these are the results that I already showed you. The study was stopped early because of superiority. And I think the other key caveat in this study, in addition to the fact that they did have to have one active nuke, which makes it a little different than the other study, the other key caveat is by chance, almost nobody received a bacavir. So we really don't know whether this would apply to a single tablet dolutegravir or bacavir 3TC in this setting. And there's at least a biologically plausible reason to believe that it may not be as good based on the effect 184V has on abacavir, reducing susceptibility, we're enhancing susceptibility to nofavir and AZT, which is what the people actually used. So we now have data, very good data, that uh, dolutegravir-based regimen, we don't have this data for bictegravir yet, um, and I don't know if we ever will, it's a big undertaking to do a study like this, but with dolutegravir at least, we can say that we have a viable alternative in somebody who doesn't have a lot of resistance, and people who fail in the U.S. don't usually fail with a lot of nuke resistance because we monitor them closely, that we have an option. In fact, at least compared to lopinavir-ritonavir, it's even a better option uh, than lopinavir-ritonavir. So we have, for the first time, a viable option that includes integrase. Um, so for first-line therapy, the guidelines now, based on very solid evidence, sort of grade A1 evidence, for NNRTI failures, boosted PI with recycled nukes, regardless of resistance, a boosted PI with an integrase, or now dolutegravir with at least one fully active nuke. And that's been added to the guidelines. For boosted PIs, mostly the people just aren't taking their medicine consistently. And although we don't have prospective data, most of the data would suggest all you need to do is make sure that they're on something that they're taking consistently and tolerating uh, rather than a big switch. And then for integrase failure, right, all of our first-line regimens in ISUSA guidelines and now DHHS guidelines are all integrase. So 
First-line failures, presumably moving forward for most people in the United States, will be integrase, if, you know, depending on what we see. We have really no prospective data whatsoever telling us how to manage these people. So the recommendations are really to completely extrapolate from what data we do have. And that presumably these people have 3TC resistance or some nuke resistance um, and maybe some integrase resistance. There's no reason to believe a boosted PI with recycled nukes shouldn't work as well here as in NNRTI failures. Uh, and similarly, perhaps a boosted PI if you have an active integrase. Either there's no resistance to the integrase that they're on or if you can use dolutegravir as an active integrase. But again, this is all extrapolating from what we know. So what about second line and beyond? Again, here the data is more variable, uh, and there's a lot of extrapolation. And I think a key branch point is do they have PI susceptibility or not? If they have susceptibility to a boosted PI, well, then they're just like these people failing first-line NNRTIs, right? And there's no reason to believe they can't use a boosted PI with recycled nukes. There's no reason to believe they can't use a boosted PI with an active integrase inhibitor. And there's no reason to believe that they can't use dolutegravir as long as there's a nuke that's fully active to go along with it. If they don't have PI susceptibility, then it gets a lot trickier. And I think we end up relying back on the old data that two and preferably three fully active drugs are the way to go. And when I sort of, sort of combed through the old guidelines to get a sense as to who these people are likely to be, because these are all people who receive non-boosted PIs. Right, in the current era, somebody on a boosted PI almost never has PI resistance. So if you go back to at least the DHHS guidelines, the non-boosted PIs, we're talking nelfinavir, basically, has been listed as an alternative for the last 15 years and has been not even listed as any option for now the last 10 years. So anybody who started therapy in the last 10 years and probably in the last 15 years should not fall into this category. And ideally, these will remain those rare people that we cycled through therapy decades ago. And I think we have less and less of them, but they're still out there. And with that, I will stop. And um, I, don't, I think we're probably cutting into lunch. Okay. So I want to thank uh, Eric Dar for a really robust discussion. Yeah, thank you. Very complicated. Um, he, he does have a flight to catch, so he